You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. All right, I was, that's right, praise Jesus. We, we had 166 uh, children who are part of Bayshore Kids Club, 44 uh, of those not connected to any church at all. Uh, so praise God for that opportunity. Thank you for the 90 plus volunteers uh, who gave time this week in some form or fashion uh, to make sure uh, that Bayshore Kids Clubs happen. What a great week. Thank you so much. Uh, also, Praise God. Isn't that awesome that we baptized two people from Serve Day who God is working in their life? We're, we're thankful uh, for the work that God is doing uh, there. Uh, thank you uh, so much for Art, for John, and just the many who are pouring into the lives of these young men. Um, you can open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. As you find your place in Ephesians this morning, we'll start in verse 1. Uh, I do want to say, if you're visiting with us, uh, that we're so glad you're here. We'd love for you to uh, stay, stick around and head to one of our equipping classes uh, that are taking place uh, for the month of June. Uh, we'd also love to connect with you in any other way. You can stop by one of the welcome areas on your way off campus, or you can text the word connect to the number that you see on the screen, and one of our Connect team members will follow up with you. Also, let me just prep you for something. Uh, we're doing something a little different, and so um, if you're new, newish, that's fine, uh, but those of you who've been Baptist for a while, uh, when we do something different, it throws you off sometimes. So uh, we are having two songs after the sermon. Uh, we're going to be doing that for a few weeks to give more time to respond. So um, don't be like fumbling around packing up during the last stanza or whatever it's called, verse. I don't know if it's called stanza. But anyway, um, in the last, because we got two, because uh, we want to respond to God. And uh, part of the motivation for that uh, is at, as we look at Ephesians chapter 3, uh, we're talking about the mystery of God. And as I prepared for this a few months ago, uh, God really used uh, this passage of scripture. Uh, it's just so rich, it's so great, it's so meaningful. Um, and I pray that the same would be true of you. So let me just pray for us. God, um, wake us up. Wake us up again. Help us to see your goodness and your affection for us. And help us to respond with lives that declare how good you are uh, by the way we trust you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Ephesians chapter three, verse one through six is where we'll start today. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this morning we're gonna look at four things, four points that I think we will wrestle with this side of heaven as it relates to the mercy and the grace of God but if we will embrace these four things, they will be a means of great grace in our life. So we'll begin with the first, which is that trials 
are a part of the grace of God. Trials are part of the grace of God. Paul is in prison when he is writing this letter. Verse 1 says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Acts tells us that after leaving Ephesus, Paul heads toward Jerusalem on his way to Rome. He's arrested in Jerusalem, and this begins years of awaiting trial where he ultimately ends up imprisoned in Rome. You see, trials are a part of the grace of God. I want to share a few things about trials. First is this, or A, while we do not seek trials, we should not be surprised by them. While we do not seek trials, we should not be surprised by them. When Paul gave his life to God, he was told that he would suffer much for the sake of Christ. He knew that something like this was coming. Jesus told us that in this world, we will have trouble. And through the Bible, we see preparation on how to face trials. And we see the examples of many, including Jesus, who faced trials on earth. This idea that following Jesus is the way to not have trials is an idea that is made up by man. What the scripture shows us, rather, is that in the trials of life, Jesus is with us. That is his promise. We should not be surprised by trials. The second thing about trials is that we should count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. We should count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. There is a reason that many Christians, when they think of trials, immediately go to James chapter one, verse two. James chapter one, verse two says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now let's break down these verses. Count it all joy. The word count is a word that carries authority. It is a word that is used when a leader governs or exercises authority. What James is telling his audience here is to use their authority over trials and to declare them or therefore consider them to count them pure joy. Now let me clarify. James does not intend for us to say that this is pure joy with insincerity. If we face a medical trial to say, I'm so glad this is happening. Or if we have somebody we love pass away to say, I'm actually just so happy they died. That might be another issue. Or if we have some kind of accident that alters the course of our life to say, oh, this is good. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is to know during a trial that this is ultimately going to be used for my good. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. They're going to come. We should not be looking for trials. I feel like some people are. They're on to the next one, like they're ready, right? Or they try to make everything into a trial, right? Like they're in traffic, or there's too much foam on their latte, or Publix is out of the BOGO specials, and they're like, oh, James chapter one. That's not a trial. That's not what this is talking about. Look, you don't have to make up trials. You don't have to look for trials. Trials will find you. 
The Christian life is the best life, but it is not the easiest life. And James says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, when you first become a Christian, you kind of wish these verses weren't in the Bible. But when you've been following Jesus for some time, you're so thankful for this passage because you know God is doing a work in you when you're going through a trial. Look at what he says in verse four again. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What James is saying here is that there is an intended result that God has in allowing or causing you and I to go through a trial. And we cannot let our desire for relief from the trial stop us from being faithful in the trial. And like anything that pushes us to grow, it takes us past where we are comfortable. We don't determine when the trial is complete. So we are often confused. We often have questions. We're often uncertain about what to do. Well, if you keep reading in this passage, James tells us what to do. Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. If you lack wisdom, ask God. Not for the way out of the trial, not for a distraction in the trial, but for wisdom. God gives generously without reproach. Typically when we give advice, it's with some reproach, like why'd you do that? You shouldn't have done that, you know? All right, you know, like tell me you're sorry. God sees our heart and when we come to him needing his wisdom, he gives it to us liberally, without reproach. Verse six says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word that is used here, doubt, actually means to make a distinction. He's not using the word doubt in terms of struggling, like you aren't sure if you can do this. No, he's saying when you ask, don't doubt that his will is best. Because what's happening often is when we ask God for wisdom, we actually have something we want that causes us to not be sure that we want what God wants for us. A wave of the sea is subject to its circumstances. Douglas Moo says that doubt here refers to a conflict of loyalties that disturb the purity of our faith. And so what we need to understand here is when we ask God, we need to believe that what God wants for us is what is best for us. We do not ask God for wisdom with the condition, but I have to get this first. And so look at verse nine. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now that almost sounds like it's randomly inserted here, but it's not. James is saying this is the perspective with which we face trials. We need to understand that if we're in a humble position, God's going to exalt us. And if we are exalted with earthly things, that stuff passes away. And this is the great gospel truth we need to realize in the midst of a trial is that we're living not for the things of this world, but for the riches of eternity. 
Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The reward of God is what we're looking for. One more thing about trials. We should trust God through the trial. In verse one, Paul refers to himself not as a prisoner of Caesar, but of Christ Jesus. He understands that ultimately God has allowed him to be where he is. And God is the authority here. So whatever position we find ourselves in, ultimately we must understand God has enabled or allowed us to be there. And we need to respond to that appropriately. When I'm doing marriage counseling, often uh, I find a spouse, they're in a position where they don't feel like their commitment is reciprocated or maybe both of them have led to a bad place. And the emphasis I try to place on that person I'm talking to is not conditioned upon the other spouse, but conditioned upon who God has called them to be. Who is God calling you to be right now? Because ultimately, God has you here. If you're a leader, yes, we adapt our leadership style based on the people we might lead, but ultimately, who we seek to honor and please and, and, and devote ourselves to is God. We're a leader who's leading for God's sake and he has us where we are. And if we're going through a trial and it seems to not be letting up and patience and trust is involved, it is ultimately God and the things God wants to do in us that we must be looking to. And when we don't understand why God would allow us to be in the situation we're in and we look to him, we understand that on the cross, our value, the value of us being in eternity was shown to us through Christ Jesus and we cling to that hope of the riches of eternal life secured by him. Listen, trials are a part of the grace of God. I may have spent too much time on this this morning, but I think it's important to understand the context here, that Paul is writing this from prison. He's writing this to the Ephesians from prison, acknowledging here that trials are a part of the Christian life, and that gives us great context for which we understand the rest of what he writes. The second thing that we should know about trials, excuse me, about the grace of God, is that grace that extends beyond the gospel is for the gospel. Grace that extends beyond the gospel is for the gospel. Now I put beyond the gospel in quotation marks because we don't actually move past the gospel. We respond to the gospel daily. J.D. Greer says the gospel is not the diving board, it's the pool. One of our values is that Jesus isn't a part of life he is life. Christianity isn't Jesus and then the rest of my life on top of that. And so we experience, though, God's blessings and goodness to us in ways that are seemingly in addition to being saved. And any goodness that we experience, any blessing we experience is for the gospel. Look at verse two. Paul says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. God's work in Paul's life is for them. In verse one, he says, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. And this is all in line with how Paul views the reason he's still alive, 
when he writes to the Philippians. Philippians chapter one, verse 21 through 26. He says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul says, to die is gain. For the Christian, to die is better. It means we will be where there is no more sickness. There is no more pain. There are no more tears. There is no more sin. There is no more sin. We will be basking in the glory of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. That is gain for the Christian. And so for the Christian, we then understand to live is because of the gain that is coming to us. The life we live right here is because God has left us on this earth, Christian, for the sake of others, for their progress and for their, for their joy in the faith. That is the life the Christian is living. So then we view any grace beyond the gospel in light of that. If God blesses us financially, we understand, I'm not approaching this legalistically, but the ultimate means is that we would be a vehicle to bless others with the finances that God has provided us. If God has given us abilities or gifts or talents, as a Christian, those are not to make a name for ourselves, but to bring glory to his name. If we have certain freedoms that are attached with where we live or opportunities we have, that freedom is not an opportunity for the flesh, but through love we ought to serve one another. Christy and I, my wife and I, realized that God had blessed our family. I particularly, not growing up in a strong Christian home, was just amazed by God's grace, married a, a, a woman who loved God. God was taking care of us. He gave us healthy kids. And so we began to say, how do we bless others through this. And, and so we decided, hey, we can bring at least one more child into our home. And that eventually led us to being foster parents for seven years and adopting uh, two children who are now a part of our family. And when God brought me here to this church, one of the things I said is I realized this was an incredible family of God, made up of great families of God. Let's bring more people into that family. God has not blessed us just so that we might think we're blessed, but so that we would be a blessing for other people. God is, God is doing a great work in our church. Great growth, great provision, great fruit. We don't do that to make our name for ourselves and for our little kingdom to grow, but to see the kingdom grow, to send missionaries to plant churches, to strengthen churches, to impact our community. The desire for every Christian is to say, God has left me here. To live is Christ. To die is gain. My, listen, my prayers are not centered around being healthier and wealthier, but being used for the glory of God. That's the Christian's prayer. 
Grace that extends beyond the gospel is for the gospel. Third thing about the grace of God in this passage is the grace of God is known through revelation of God. The grace of God is known through revelation of God. Look at verse three. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So we talk about this a lot here. Revelation is God revealing things to us. God has chosen to show us who he is, who we are, and some implications of those two core truths. Now, we have a diagram here that I show periodically, and and what this is illustrating is that we can't figure out everything by trusting in our heart. There is a ceiling to our ability to understand, to our reason. So God has revealed things to us. Now, he's made some of these things plainly clear through creation. I believe God's written certain things on our heart that we might know enough to seek after him. God shows us certain things in history, and God specifically reveals things to us through the word of God. I think the hard thing, though, can be deciphering what we are thinking and feeling and what it, whether it's from God's revelation or man's revelation. Like, is that from God or is that from watching a lot of Disney when I was a little kid? Or like, you know, is that God's word or is that a Taylor Swift lyric? Like, those things can be hard for us. Am I able to read the Bible objectively or does my upbringing and my experiences cloud that? And so I think there are three things that Paul mentions here about God's revelation that are helpful. First, God's revelation is centered around Christ. God's revelation is centered around Christ. Look at verse four. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So again, God's revealed things to us, right? But they're centered around Jesus. The Old Testament law shows us that we are not righteous. It shows us that there is a need for a sacrifice. The prophets They came and they declared the need for salvation, the need for repentance, the need for God to come through. We now understand that was all centered around Jesus. We might read the New Testament. We look at the early church. We need to understand what God was doing in the early church was because of Christ. A lot of times churches look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. These are great verses that depict the church giving themselves away together, being devoted to meeting together. They want that idealistic community, and they fail to remember that right before that, the gospel was preached, and they were responding to the gospel. That's why the church was what it was. And then all these things about our character and how we ought to live our lives written in the New Testament, they are all about how we ought to live once we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that Christ is our motivation. It's centered around Christ. The second thing about the revelation of God is that it is first revealed through the prophets and apostles in the New Testament. It is first revealed through the prophets and apostles in the New Testament. Paul says this in verse five, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So, um, There is debate on whether or not revelation of God now is on the same level as what was revealed in the scriptures. Understanding there that the New Testament becomes a lens through which we read the Old Testament. But 
What I would say is there has become, somebody said, you know, it's more trendy Christianity. I don't know if I'd say that. But there's just become a movement that we begin to put on par what we feel like God is telling us and speaking to us with what God revealed through the prophets and apostles of the New Testament. And then I would say in some camps, it's just certain people are hearing from God. And so we put those certain people, the pastor, the man of God, the woman of God, whatever you call it, and their understanding of God's word, their revelation on par with what the Old Testament, excuse me, what the apostles and prophets of the New Testament would say. Here's what I think. The more I look into that talk, the more I think that's a different kind of faith. And the more I think it's dangerous. You see, any new revelation of God is re-revelation of God. It's just the Holy Spirit revealing to us through his spirit, illuminating for us the things he's already revealed in his word. Do you know that the Puritans who led a revival, a great awakening in America, actually just considered that a reformation? They said, we're just going back to the things that God has already revealed to us and the spirit of God moved through that. Listen, for true revival, for a true movement of God, we don't need some man or woman to hear something new from God. We just need the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, to obey the Word of God. That's what will lead to revival. This should be the focus. And listen, this should not just be the focus of the person who's up here preaching. This should be the focus of every person who claims to be a Christian. You should be a student of the word and a teacher of the word. If you want to see real transformation taking place in your life and in the lives of others, get into the word of God that has been revealed to you as a gift of his grace so that you might know about him, you might know about you, and you might know how to live. That's how we see a movement of God. God Revealed it to the prophets and apostles of the New Testament. And then lastly about the revelation of God is it is available to all. It is available to all. In verse 5, again, he says, hey, it was made known to the sons of men, excuse me, the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. But then in verse 6, he says, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. What he's saying here is he's saying this mystery is being revealed Clinton Arnold, who's a biblical scholar, says the mystery was not like Ephesians mystery cults. It was not a mystery of esoteric knowledge reserved for a secret few. This mystery, this message about Christ, is for all peoples. Paul urges the Ephesians to forsake any other pseudo-mysteries and focus their attention on Christ alone. But people... Love, a mystery, and secret knowledge, and the opportunity to be imparted with that secret knowledge, and as a source of pride to know something others don't have, maybe to make their way into that. This is a huge tenet of versions of Christianity that I would say are not Christianity, like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism and others, but it's also becoming a movement among circles of Christianity, and I would say even it's a little bit of the spirit of Catholicism as well, where there's this group, or there's this person, and they're kind of in the secret council, and they 
have specific, special revelation of God. They're hearing from God. And when people talk to me about that, and they take a lot of pride and excitement in that, and I would say that, I'm trying to use the right word, but in some of our extreme charismatic movements, that's a trend, and they talk about it and they brag about it. But you know what I think of? I think of this meme that circulated on the internet. You can go ahead and put that up there. (laughs) It's silly. It's silly. And when someone begins to talk to you about some special revelation they have of God, I think this meme, which I made on my free time, uh, is a little more appropriate. If you're on the podcast, I'll just share it. It says, when someone starts talking about receiving special knowledge from God, but you, oh, there's a typo there. See, I made it. You already, fix that in the next service, guys. You already have a Bible. I don't care about your special revelation from God. God has freely bestowed on us all his word. He has given it to us. I don't need you to teach me how to understand. I'm not saying that we don't help each other as believers, but I have the spirit of God. You have the spirit of God. You don't need me to tell you some special revelation from God. God wants to empower his people through his spirit to do what he's called us to do. That's the story of the Bible. Now, the plan of God was kind of maybe not all known in the Old Testament, and you might say hidden in a sense, but Jesus made it clear. God speaks to Peter in Acts 10, and he says it's clear. The gospel's available to the Gentiles. God calls the Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council says the gospel is available to all. From Abraham being told he would be a father of many nations. From Israel being exalted so that they would exalt God and so that others would come from other nations and see God. From the prophets declaring, Israel, you're not doing that and you're not treating other nations like you should be treating because you're full of pride. From the great commission that says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From Pentecost, when the Spirit of God moved to say it's not staying here. The gospel isn't staying here. And from the revelation uh, picture of every tribe and every tongue around the throne of Jesus, this is the story that we are called into. And it is available to all. The grace of God is known through revelation of God. Number four, last thing. The grace of God for all people is the mystery of God. The grace of God for all people is the mystery of God. And we should marvel in it And proclaim it. Look at what verse six says. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now the word mystery has been studied and debated for centuries. But what we know is that this mystery is being revealed. And in some form or fashion, the mystery is that we can all be fellow heirs. Not just the Jews. And in in Ephesus, at this time, that puzzled the Jews. How can those who don't follow the Jewish customs have the gospel? But what I would say is that how the Jews could have access to God was a mystery. Why them? Why Abraham? And there are still things that we can study and debate and discuss for hours or years. But what is clear here is that this mystery is being known through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what needs to be the central focus. I'm not saying that we don't 
learn more information. I'm not saying that we can't talk about practical applications. I'm not saying that we aren't examining how our lives are a provision for others. I'm not saying that the expression of ourselves through church isn't valuable. But as Tony Merida says, what I'm saying is we must make the main thing the plain thing in Christian worship and missions. This is the great mystery that is being revealed. A holy God has set out to rescue and redeem people through Jesus Christ. So if we are studying theology, it ultimately points to how great this story is and who the center of the story is. If we are trying to get better at life, ultimately we are motivated by the one who saved us from our struggle to even want to do good. Our works in serving others are because we want to display his character and respond to his work for us. The gathering of worship should not ever leave us saying there was energy in the room, but we should leave saying Christ is on the throne. We shouldn't walk away from sermons thinking, man, that's a motivational speaker, but we should walk away saying, man, we have a majestic God. Bob Roberts Jr. says every church should ask two questions. How are we making disciples and what kind of disciples are we making? We don't want Christians who look around and say, I am crushing it. We want people who gather together and who look up and say, I should have been crushed, but Jesus was crushed on my behalf in his mercy, and I'm going to live every day amazed by that, desiring for all people to see that. You see, there is a veil. There is a veil. And the veil has been torn in two because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The grace of God is the mystery of God, and we should marvel in and proclaim that. And so the call to respond this morning is to marvel at the grace of God for us, at the grace of God for you, perhaps for the first time, and to say, I realize I am a sinner, and God sent Jesus, and I don't understand everything about that, but what is clear to me is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you are here and you've messed things up. It's your fault. You know it is. You've wasted time, you've wasted energy, you've hurt yourself, you've hurt others. But God is still here. And today, you just need to marvel again at the grace of God for you. And church, our response is to proclaim the gospel of God, of his great grace to one another and to the world who needs it. Let's worship together. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Help us to respond now. In Jesus' name, amen.